0: If it's your first time here today, my name is Dave, I'm the lead pastor, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to take some time this morning and uh, join us here at Connect on this freezing cold morning. It's official, isn't it? Summer has come to an end. I think we got teased a little bit there. The fall dragged out with some nice warm weather, and then all of a sudden, it just started snowing. That's just what it's like living in lovely Illinois. But um, I was thinking about it. One of the things about summer coming to an end is uh, it is also the end of um, all those pictures. Our friends post on Instagram of all those beautiful places they've been on their summer vacations, and we're sat here uh, watching, looking, realizing that they're in these beautiful cities around the country, sometimes around the world, and uh, posting these lovely pictures on Facebook and Instagram, and uh, we always get to see these beautiful pictures, don't we? But have you ever noticed that whenever we go to some place that's not that nice, we don't post those pictures, do we? Maybe you've been to somewhere that's a bit sketchy, a bit shady, like not a very uh, nice looking place. Those aren't the pictures that make it to the Instagram reel. I bet if I went around the room this morning, every one of you has got a story about somewhere you went, and when you got there, you were like, okay, this isn't what I expected. Uh, I can remember a few years ago, a good friend of mine from here at Connect and I, we decided we were going to ride our bikes to St. Louis uh, to raise money as a kind of a a charity ride, to raise money for um, Compassion, an organization that we support that helps children in poverty around the world. So this two-day journey took us from Peoria to St. Louis. And it was a great ride, and we had a lot of fun. And we kind of mapped it out ahead of time. You know, you have to go on the bike routes. Obviously, you can't go on 55 on a bike. So we were, uh, you know, kind of making our way through the country. It was beautiful. I remember the day we were heading to St. Louis. We were coming down through the suburbs. And it was just so pretty. And there were these bike trails coming through the suburbs. It was a beautiful day. And then the very last part of our journey, right before we crossed the river to get into St. St. Louis, took us into kind of inner city St. Louis, we suddenly come off these suburban beautiful bike trails and we find ourselves in a really kind of sketchy, shady area. There were cars, you know, with broken windows sitting on bricks and, you know, not many people out on the streets. And and here's me and Luke, my buddy, in our spandex on our bikes. You know, I mean, we, we would stand out anywhere, but definitely in this community. And then um, my chain comes off my bike right in the middle of like probably the scariest place. So we're there, we're kind of looking around. I'm trying to get my chain back on. Um, I think Luke was still on his bike because he knew if somebody starts to chase us. He doesn't have to outrun them. He just has to outrun me uh, because then it'll be me that they catch and not him, you know. So it just wasn't, you know, we posted lots of pictures on that trip, but that particular area of the city didn't post any pictures from there. It wasn't the prettiest place we've ever been. And um, I'm guessing that Some of you have been to places like that, and this morning we're actually going to talk about a city that I guarantee you, wherever you've been, however sketchy, however rough it looks, will be nothing like the city that we're going to talk about this morning. Because we've been looking over the last few weeks at the life of a man named Abraham. So here at Connect, we'll often do um, series where we'll talk about topics, and then sometimes we'll we'll look at a a character in the Bible, a person, and we'll look at their life, and we'll learn a little bit more about them. But also, as we look at their life, we'll say, now, what can I learn from this individual? How can I live differently? How can this affect the way I live my life? And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at this, this incredible man by the name of Abraham and he's a very significant figure in the bible because abraham his his um he he can be traced right back to the foundations of not just christianity but judaism islam all look back to abraham and uh, he was known as the father of nations This is kind of where where things began. So out of Abraham came the people of Israel. Out of the people of Israel came the Bible that we read today. Uh, Out of the lineage of Abraham came Jesus. He was a descendant of Abraham. So he's a very key figure in the Old Testament. So it's been fascinating over the last few weeks looking at his life. And in case you've not been here for some of the weeks when we've been talking about Abraham, I'll I'll catch you up real quick. So the first week, we heard that Abraham wasn't really a follower of God, and he lived in a city where there were many, many gods that they worshipped. And he had this encounter with God, and God said, follow me, Abraham, leave your city that you call home, come out into this wilderness, because I want to do something new through you and your family. And Abraham did that. Just on God's calling, Abraham left. He was 75 years old. He'd been living in this place for many years. He left his home, and he goes out and he follows God. And then we heard the following week that God gave Abraham this promise. He said, Abraham, I'm gonna um, use you to impact millions of people. Your descendants will be countless. Your your impact on the world will be amazing, which was a crazy thing for Abraham to hear because he's 75 years old, and he and his wife are childless. They have no children, and God's saying, I'm going to give you multiple children, and generation after generation, and people will be blessed through your descendants. One day, Abraham looked out at the stars in the sky, and God spoke to Abraham and said, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. You just won't be able to count them. There'll be so many of them. And this was really hard for Abraham to wrap his mind around, so we talked a couple of weeks ago about how God made a promise to Abraham. We called it a covenant covenant. And it was great because it was the first of many promises that you can see throughout the Bible that that God has made. And and we can look now, as we look over our shoulder at all these promises God has made, and we can see that he's been true to his word throughout the scriptures. That those promises, many of them, still apply to us today. and, And he is trustworthy. We can believe in him and his promises. But despite this promise that God gave him, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they had doubts. They had doubts. They were both old. Uh, Sarah had never had children. So last week, if you were here, Whitney spoke. She did a fantastic job about talking about how, um, like us, Abraham doubted God and and took matters into his own hands. He made a mistake. He didn't trust God completely. And Sarah came to Abraham and said, hey, listen, why don't you sleep with my servant? Maybe she'll give you a child, and then then you will have these children that God's talking about, but we'll try and figure it out, because I can't see it happening any other way. So that happens, and um, Hagar gives birth to a son named Ishmael, and and this was not God's plan. But God, being gracious and kind, he comes and he meets with Abraham and and Sarah, and he said, no, my promise still stands. My promise still stands. You will still have a son. In fact, within the next year, you will have this son. Abraham, at this point, is 99 years old. Even in Bible times, this was past your prime, okay? Not many people were having children at 99 years old. So so this is kind of a big thing. And so much so that when God said this to Abraham, they were in a tent. Uh, It says, and Whitney talked about this last week, that Sarah heard God say this and she laughed. And God said, Sarah, why are you laughing? She said, I didn't laugh. Which I find really silly because Sarah, it's a tent. They heard you, okay? You might be on the other side, but it's a tent. He heard you laugh, if your kids have ever spent the night in the yards in a tent and they come in at 11 o'clock, it's because you can hear everything outside the tent, okay? What seemed like a great idea to, to camp out in the yard turned into a terrifying idea when they start to hear those animals rustling around outside. Obviously, they heard Sarah. But then as Whitney said last week, a year later, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah becomes pregnant and they give birth to Isaac. And next week, we're going to talk all about Isaac and um, just that, how, how this promise played out. And it's a great uh, message next week. But this week, I wanted to pause just for a little bit because we were introduced to these three people last week, God and two others. And something really interesting happens next in the life of Abraham. And it involves these three people, and that's what we're going to look at today, because as we look at it, and I've been kind of researching this and studying this topic this last week, and it's fascinating because I've seen some insights into the very nature of God, into the heart of Abraham. And I hope this morning that we'll leave challenged to be a little bit more like Abraham in this really unique story. So this story is found in Genesis chapter 18. We're gonna have the words up on the screen. If you've got your Bible app on your phone, you can follow along there or you can just read on the screen. But in Genesis 18, verses 16 through 17, it says, when the men got up to leave, and bear in mind, the men, um, we're not sure exactly, but we know that God is one of them. Maybe the other two are angels, but it says, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, one of the men, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? So something's about to happen. Something's about to happen to the city of Sodom. And, and God says to his friends, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, I just think this is incredible. That God is saying, hey, should we let Abraham in on what's about to happen? Like God of the universe, the creator of the universe is asking, hey, should we involve Abraham in this discussion? It doesn't say why he said that, but i got a few ideas. Maybe one is that what's about to happen, God wants Abraham to be able to tell the story in the future. Hey, this is, I know why this happened, because God spoke to me. He told me what was about to happen. So there'll be a, a witness to the story of what happened. Or maybe, and this just blows my mind, maybe it's because God wanted to engage with Abraham because he wanted to hear Abraham's thoughts on the matter. Can you imagine how that affects the way you and I pray? The idea that there is a God who not only wants to hear our prayers, but wants to engage with us, wants to hear our prayers, that our prayers can, can literally have an influence in the direction God would go. I think God wants, I don't think God wants to, to rule and, and we have no control of anything or we have no idea of what's going on. I honestly think God wants to engage with us. And I think that should encourage you and I this morning in our prayers. Say, God, I really want to see this happen in my life. God, I really want to see my neighbors um, find you. God, I really want to see this situation resolved. I want to be healed. You know, and, and we can have, and it gives me hope, because when I pray, I know now that God is listening. God is listening. He wants to hear what I have to say, because he wanted to hear what Abraham had to say. So the next verse gives us a clue of what's about to happen. Verse 20. And then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, this word outcry is really important because it's the first time we hear God use this word, but we start to see this throughout the Bible, because there are other times that there is um occasions of outcry. One of the more famous ones, if you're familiar, later on after the life of Abraham, uh, there's a man by the name of Moses. And God takes Moses as a leader. He says, I want you to go to Egypt because the Israelites, who are now a nation of people who exist, um, they're in slavery. They're being tormented and punished and they're living as slaves in Egypt and they've been crying out to me. They've been praying, they've been crying out saying, God, free us from this slavery, free us from these chains. And it says, I've heard the cries of my people. And Moses, you are going to go and you are going to set them free. So we see this pattern that starts going throughout Scripture that starts here with Abraham. That God hears the cries of people who are suffering. And I believe that's still true to this day. There are people groups around the world who are suffering in pain. And God hears their cries. God hears the cries of people who are suffering. And here in Genesis, he hears the cries from this city named Sodom. And when you hear more about the kind of terrible place this was, you'll understand why the cries were coming out. So combining clues from biblical geography with archaeological evidence, we now believe that Sodom and its sister cities, one of which was Gomorrah, uh, there were probably five in all, that they were located in what's today, modern-day Israel, Jordan, that kind of area, just north of the Dead Sea. We can learn about Sodom and its fate here in Genesis 18, but it's also talked about later in the Bible by the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel. Jesus talks about this city. Um, past Bible times, a historian by the name of Josephus, who's very famous because he wrote a lot of things, he talked about Sodom, Sodom uh, many other Jewish writers. So when you take all of these collection of writers together and they're all available to, to find and study and research, when you put all of these together, we get a very clear picture of what a terrible place this city was. So here's what we know now from piecing together all of these these writers, all of these different people who have talked about what went on back in Sodom. Here's what we know about this city. We know that Sodom was an incredibly wealthy city We don't know how they came about their wealth. They were very close to the Dead Sea, which is known as the Salt Sea. Uh, Back in those times, salt was a a commodity. It was good for healing, preserving. So so maybe they were in a great place to to harvest that salt and and use it to gain wealth. But we know for sure that it was an incredibly wealthy city. We know that um, this was a time where wealth and power Bought you things, you know, significance. This was a time when, you know, if you were in the haves, you're in a much better place than the have nots. Now, we also need to remember that Sodom was around at the time before the Ten Commandments were in place. Um, there would be a t- place where people would worship many gods. Um, basically, at this point in history, people would just decide what was right and what was wrong based on their own consciences. That would be how they would decide their, which direction their moral compass would, live, would point. So everyone who lived in Sodom, they had so much money, so many slaves, that they got to define their culture. They were so powerful, so wealthy, so influential, they got to decide what kind of city this would be. And they decided that Sodom would be a city of wealthy people. And therefore, no one but wealthy people can live here. This was a city full of beautiful people. And no one but beautiful people can live here. They determined this is the kind of city that we want to be. So much so, they actually created laws in Sodom to ensure this. They actually had laws written that allowed the people of Sodom to do whatever they wanted to keep the undesirables out. So if somebody showed up at the city gates and they were begging, if somebody tried to move into the city that wasn't wealthy, it was open season on that person. You could murder them, you could enslave them, you could attack them, you could rape them, you could do anything you want with no consequences whatsoever. This is how bad this place was. I came across this piece of law that was discovered from an early rabbinical writer um, talking about Sodom. He said, Whoever strengthens the hand of the poor or the needy with a loaf of bread shall be burnt with fire. That was a law in the city of Sodom. (laughs) If you are caught helping someone in need, you will be burnt with fire. Charity wasn't just discouraged, it was a crime. You could be punished if you were kind to people in the city of Sodom because they were so determined to keep just the people they wanted in this city, a people of wealth and influence. Later in the Bible, Ezekiel, speaking of Sodom, talks about what it was that was God's decision to destroy this. In Ezekiel 16, 49, he says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They had more than they needed. They were wealthy. They didn't need to work. And yet still they did nothing to help those around them. And as you read the Bible, as you go through Scripture, you see more and more that this breaks the heart of God. When God sees people oppressed and suffering and poor and in need, where there are opportunities to help them but they're not helped, that breaks the heart of Father God. That's the the cries that go out to God that he hears. In fact, here at Connect, we believe that so much. We're so passionate about that. We want to make sure that we're never a church that gets caught up in what we have and forget those around us in need. So we're always looking for ways here at Connects that, that we can use the blessing that God's given us here in Washington and This this blessed life that we have. How can we use what God's blessed us with to help others, to make a difference in the lives of others? Because we believe God's blessed us, so we too wanna bless others. So we actually do this every year at Connect, and this morning I'm going to push pause on the message just for a second, because I'm going to announce today that in a couple of weeks' time, we will be having our annual Give, Christmas Thanksgiving Give offering. We do something here at Connect, and the name changes every year. Last year it was Give 2021, this year we've decided to call it Give 2022, incredibly creative here. Honestly, we've got teams of people that work day and night on the creative elements of what we do. So last year was 2021. So we were like, hey, let's call it Give 2021. And this year, we're like, what should we call it? And we're like, I know, Give 2022. But there is actually some purpose in why we call it that because here's what we've been doing for the last three years. We've taken the the number 2021 last year. Two years ago, we used 2020. This year, it's 2022. So it's growing every year. And we're encouraging everyone at Connect In a couple of weeks' time, as we enter the Thanksgiving season, the Christmas season, there'll be this temptation to just spend way more money than we should. Before we get caught up in the trappings and the consumerism of Black Friday and Christmas shopping, why don't we look at what we've been given, see how blessed we are, and see how we can give something that will help others. And here's the idea we came up with a few years ago. What if everyone at Connect were to give $20 and 22 cents for every member of their family. So if it's just you and your spouse, that would be $40.44. If you're a family of four, that would be $80.88. If you're a family of five, that would be even more. So um (laughs) should have done the math (laughs) beforehand. And we've done this over the last few years. And this week... We worked out that just based on everyone who's given for the last three months, so if you're here this morning, you're somebody who has given in any way over the last three months, we we tallied up how many people that represented, how many families that represented. We did the math, and if just the people who have given over the last three months were to give $20.22 for every member of their family, we'd have $11,000. In one offering, $11,000. And what's happened in years gone by is there have been some people who have said, you know, God's really blessed me. I'm gonna give $200.22. Or I'm gonna give $2,022. And people have given more. And over the years, we've collected more. And last year, we were able to, and, and here's what we do. When we collect this money, we actually use it to bless some local organizations. I'm gonna tell you who they are in just a second. But let me just tell you, last year, one of the local organizations that we helped was our friends down in District 50, and uh, one of our good friends, Cory Sharp, who attends here at Connect, he's the principal down there at the middle school, Beverly Manor. And we talk a lot about dreams and visions he has to help the kids in that community through the school. And many of them he can't do because the resources, the funds just aren't there. So I said, Cory, what if this year you're one of the organizations that we help? So last year we, we showed up at Cory's office and we presented him with this massive check and uh, said, here, we want to help your school. It was brilliant. I talked to Corey this morning. He said, so much has happened in the last year with those funds that we couldn't have done. They've been able to give away a book every month to every student in the school to encourage them to read. So they've they've been getting these free books every month. They've been doing art therapy classes. So much that he's wanted to do to impact the lives of these students that he wasn't able to do because the funds weren't there. So we're always looking for wonderful organizations that we can help with the great vision and ministry that they've already got. So this year, we've got four places that we want to s- divide these funds between. So I'll work uh, this way around. So Compassion, top left. That's an organization that we partner with. They're a global organization. They help kids in poverty around the world. And the great thing about Compassion is we may just send you know a small amount to them, but it goes a long way because a dollar in, in Ecuador or Africa can have much greater impact than a dollar in America. So it's great to be able to send funds there and transform the lives of children living in poverty. Another wonderful organization, one of the board members attends Tense Connect, the Ronald McDonald House Charity. If you're familiar with that place, it's, it's downtown. It's really close to OSF. It's been there a couple of years, and it's a house that um, provides accommodation for families who have traveled from far because their children have life-threatening conditions, cancer diagnosis, sicknesses. That means they have to stay at the hospital for days, sometimes weeks on end. So these parents with young children who are in a hospital room, they have somewhere they can stay for free, a beautiful place they can stay. People bring meals. So we're gonna do a special project with them. We're gonna help them, give them a gift. Um, Washington Weekend Snack Pack is a great organization here locally. It's a group of people who collect donations and food, and then with that food, they're able to help kids in our school who come from under-resourced families who maybe food's a little bit more scarce in their home than it is in some of ours. So they get lunches at, during the week at school, but then when they go home at the weekend, sometimes there isn't enough food. So this awesome organization. They pack these little snack packs that go home with these kids. So over the weekend, they have extra food to take to their families, to relieve their families of some of that financial burden. A great organization. Really looking forward to helping them. And then the last one, Project 61571, is an idea we've come up with just in-house here at Connect. Oftentimes, we'll hear of a need in the community. There'll be a family who's maybe having a difficult time, and, and we want to be able to build a fund so that when we hear of something, when you contact us and say, hey, this just happened to my neighbors. They don't attend Connect, but this, this tragedy just happened, this, this, and they, they weren't insured, or this situation's happened, he's lost a job, is there any way we can help them? That we would have a fund that would say, yes, we can help cover that cost. We can help cover that utility bill. We can help cover a payment on that car, whatever it might be. So that's how we're gonna divide up that money. So in two weeks' time, you're gonna hear, um, we're gonna announce the big offering. Uh, Next week, we'll open up the fund so you can start giving ahead of time, and then it'll be that first Sunday after Thanksgiving. We'll take that big offering, and then we'll announce uh, what we did with that. So exciting, great opportunity. We do this every year, and it's one of my favorite things in the year because it's a way that we can make a difference. And as we're learning this morning, it lines up with the Father heart of God. The Father, Heart of God, who hears the cries of the poor and the needy, people who who are suffering, people who are in pain, people who are struggling, and we can make a difference. So, back to Sodom, this city that had no morals, no morals sexually, no morals physically, a city with no conscience at all. I came across another story um, from the city of Sodom. It was a story of a woman who was caught giving flour to a poor man. This poor man had come, this beggar, and he was hanging out in Sodom and people couldn't work out why he wasn't dying. That was what they normally did. They would just leave these people to just die because they had nothing and this guy wasn't dying. So they figured out someone must be feeding him. Then they they figured out this lady was smuggling flour to him and he was using it to make bread and to eat. So they arrested this woman. They hung her from the city walls. They covered her in honey so the bees would come and kill her slowly. This is like history. This is, you know, this is written by historians of the kind of things that took place in this evil, corrupt city. It's no wonder that God heard the outcry from this corrupt and dangerous, wealthy, lawless city. So how does this factor in with the life of Abraham? (laughs) If it's your first time here, this is like, wow, this is a really upbeat, fun message to hear. How does this factor in in the life of Abraham? We're gonna get there. There's a really great attribute of Abraham that we're gonna come across here in a second. But let me explain first how we need to get there. So um, we've kind of breeze through the life of Abraham we've not been able to land on every instant that happened in his life and um, there was a time when uh, earlier on before all this happens where we, we meet Abraham's nephew a man by the name of Lot and Abraham and Lot they're living now um, in this place God takes to them and they're, they're growing in wealth and prosperity they own cattle and they've got so many cattle a pair of them that the land they're living on is too small for all of their cattle to graze to feed on so there's this great incident that happens a few chapters before here where Abraham and Lot have this conversation say, well, we need to split up. We need to separate because there's not enough room for both of our families. And Abraham says to Lot, where do you want to go? He goes, well, I'll go down to that city called Sodom. And off Lot goes. So Lot and his family, they head down to Sodom and he fits right in because he's a very wealthy man. Abraham, he chooses to stay up in the highlands and, and he stays kind of more out in the wilderness. So when Abraham hears... The God that these three men are heading down there, Abraham's thinking, I got family there. I got some family that live there. So, so he has this really unique conversation with God. It's a crazy conversation. Let's let's listen to this interaction between Abraham and God. So in Genesis 18, 23 to 25, Abraham approached him, Abraham approached God and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Abraham knows that God wants to destroy this city. So he says, but God, would you sweep away the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you found 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing. Destroying the righteous along with the wicked? Why would you be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same? Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth, I know who you are, God. You're the judge of all the earth. So as a judge, you should be judging fairly. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Now it's interesting that Abraham uses the word righteous because this was a time before Christians because this was a time before Christ. This was a time before God-fearing Jews because Jews hadn't yet begun as a nation. So really, there wasn't much to define what it meant to be righteous in this time. Basically, a righteous person was just somebody who believed in God, somebody who feared the, the creator of the universe. And Abraham said, hey, in this godless, immoral place, what if there are some people there who believe in you? They may not be perfect, they may not be living the best life, but they, they believe in you, they're righteous people. Would you destroy them just because you want to destroy the wicked? And I have to wonder if, if Abraham, we don't know this for sure, but maybe he's doing the math in his head and he's thinking, I bet by now Lot's got about 50 people in his family. What about my family? So, so he just pulls this number and says, what about, you know, 50 What about if there are 50 people? Maybe he's thinking of Lot and his family, his his nephew and his family. He says, what about if there are 50 people? And the Lord replied, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Now this is really important to understand. This is the the heart of God. I will spare the entire city for the sake of just a few. So God agrees to Abraham's request and logic. And then this crazy conversation begins. Abraham spoke in, since I've begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes, suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50, will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Now, to put this in perspective, Sodom uh, probably was about a population of about 8 to 1,200 people. So it wasn't a huge city, but that was still a pretty significant number, 50. So he's like, well, what about 45? He's kind of lowering his number. He's, He's negotiating with God here. He's bargaining with God. Then Abraham pressed a request further. Suppose there's only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 40. Well, please don't be angry, my Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find 30. Then Abraham said, since since I've dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only 20. And the Lord replies, then I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. And finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak just one more time. But suppose there's only 10 that are found there. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And then for some reason, that's where the negotiation ends. But it's a really bizarre conversation that Abraham's having with God. He's like, well, what about it? What about this? And if you understand how bargaining and bartering works, it, God's not doing a very good job. Earlier this year, I was in Nepal. And uh, on our last day before we left, we got to go to the market and uh, buy some souvenirs and some gifts to bring home to family. And maybe you've been somewhere like this in Mexico or somewhere where where you go to these markets and there's no prices on everything because you're meant to barter, you're meant to bargain. And our guide explained to us how much we could, you know, go down without really offending the person, you know. So we would go to these different stores. I bought a blanket that I bought back. And I remember the lady gave me a price. I was like, no, no, I'll give you this. And for a couple of minutes, we went backwards and forwards. And then I pretended. I was like, well, I'm leaving. And she's like, okay, wait, wait, wait. And I was like, ha, 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 And I felt really good. And I probably still walked away with a blanket I spent too much on. But the bargaining was kind of backwards and forwards. In fact, I remember one place, there was a guy stopped me on the street. He had this ornament. And uh, he said, how much would you give me for this? I said, no, I don't want it. He goes, come on, how much? How much? I was like, I don't want it. I really don't want it. He goes, just give me a price. How much? I was was like, oh, no. So I just threw out this stupid number, like $5. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. no. I can't live on. Um, I don't know how he spoke, but he had a Nepalese accent. But he was pleading poverty. He's like, some reason, he had an Italian accent there. for for a second, that's what I realized was happening. So he's like, no, 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 no. $5. Too small. Too small. But he's like, you give me, I think, $45. I'm like, no way. That's way too much. No. Uh, 10. He's like, no, no, no. So we go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. And he's really driving a hard bargain. So I'm like, I don't want it. I walked away. He's like, okay, go, go, go. And he stops me. He's like, all right, how about this? How about this? And finally, he's, he gives me this number. I think like $15. I like, all right, 15 He's like, thank you. And I took it. And I know for a fact that 15 was still a great price for that. But as I'm walking away, it suddenly dawns on me, I don't even want this. I had no desire. I wasn't looking for this. This isn't something I wanted. But he'd stopped me He said, how much for this? And I got so caught up in the bargaining backwards and forwards that I was like, yes. I walked away and I was like, wait, wait, what am I doing with this? But that's how bargaining works. You start low, they start high. You kind of meet in the middle. And God, Abraham's like, well, what about this? Okay. What about 45 bucks? Okay. What about 30? Yeah, okay. I mean, it's terrible bargaining because he just keeps saying, yes, 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 yes. But it's almost like Abraham's trying to see how merciful God is. He's trying to get an idea of just how much mercy there is in God. And we discover from this story, there's an awful lot. Because he gets down to 10 people. That's about 1% of the population of Sodom. And God says, if there is even 10, I will spare the whole city. So, let's jump on ahead here. Um, So we learn something here about the nature of God, that he's willing to hold back on judgment and punishment if there is even just a small presence of righteous amongst the wicked. So as the story goes on, it's a, a crazy story. You can read it for yourselves, but I'll just kind of give you the highlights, the, the, uh, the two other people, the angels, they head down to, to Sodom, and Lot meets them at the city gates, and he says, hey, come stay with me, and they're like, no, we're gonna stay in the, the sleeping quarters in the middle of the city, and they're like, he's like, no, no, you can't do that, because the sleeping quarters were famous for being a place where, when people stayed there, because of the laws of Sodom, uh, people would go out, and they, they, legally, they could attack them, they could enslave them, they could rape them, they could kill them. All of these could happen if these people live in Traveling through their city were undesirables, were people who were poorer. The people of Sodom had the right to do whatever they wanted with them. This is how corrupt and bad this place was. So Lot's like, No, no, you can't stay there, stay in my house, stay in my house. So he finally convinced them to stay at their house. But even though they're staying in the house, we learned that the people of Sodom, they come and they hear there are strangers in the city and they're banging on Lot's door and they're saying, Bring them out, we want to do unspeakable harm to them. And Lot says, Please leave them alone, leave them alone. And eventually, we learn that God blinds the people of the city so they can do no harm. And then early the next morning, the angels say to Lot and to his family, you need to get out of here. Something terrible is about to happen. Lot goes to his family, his daughter's fiancés. They don't take him seriously. So Lot grabs his wife, his daughters, and he escapes. And God destroys the city of Sodom. And Gomorrah and other cities in the area. But here's something really interesting. Listen to this. In Genesis 19, verses 20 to 21, Lot says to the angel, look, there's a small village nearby. Please let me go there instead. Don't you see how small it is? Then my life will be saved. And the angel said, I will grant your request. I will not destroy the little village. So we see this moment where Lot finds his way to a small village and because of his presence in the village, God doesn't destroy that particular village. But he destroys all the others. And I think in that moment, we see this, this contrast of, of God's judgment, but also God's mercy as well, to want to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. And I'll explain a little bit more here at the end, but just a little interesting insight. I discovered this week that archaeologists have actually excavated these areas. And not only have they found the ruins of the cities they believe were Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in the area, they have found a thin layer of a sulfurous substance across these cities. What they believe happened was there's a fault line that goes from this area all the way to Africa. They believe that there was some kind of catastrophic event that took place. An earthquake, something like that. And literally, as the gas escaped, fire fell from the skies. These cities were wiped out. But while we see this side of God's nature, this idea of, of judgment against the wrong that takes place in the world we see this conversation that, we had, that God has with Abraham and a side of God's mercy that also exists. And we learn that as long as there's righteous in the midst of the wicked, and here's, here's where it's gonna kind of translate to today, to what this means to us thousands of years later, as long as there are righteous in the presence of the wicked, there is still hope. We see thousands of years ago that God says, even if it's just a few, there is still hope. Later in the New Testament, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, he writes a letter and he's talking about this very subject because people are are getting frustrated at all the wickedness in the world, all the evil things that are happening, and and people want to see God deal with this and take care of this. And, And Peter explains why sometimes God is slow in pouring out his judgment. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, that same wickedness that existed in the heart of Sodom and Gomorrah, it exists in the world today. We see evil and suffering and wickedness throughout the world today. And there can be times when we can look and say, God, I just wish you'd take care of this. I wish you'd deal with these these terrible people around the world. But the nature of God, the heart of God, is that he's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus told a story once about a good shepherd, and the shepherd represented the father heart of God. And this good shepherd had a 100 sheep, and even though only one of them was missing, he went out in search of that one lost sheep because he wasn't content with just 99. He still wanted the one that was lost. And I think the great news for our world today is that as long as there are righteous amongst the wicked, there is hope. We are the hope in the communities in which we find ourselves in. We might feel like we're just 50 or 40 or 30 or sometimes feel like we're 10, but we are the hope in the communities in which we find ourselves. I think sometimes people look around and, and they're afraid at the, the wickedness and what's going on, but... In God's economy, it might just be a small number, but a small number can make a difference. Jesus talked about salt and light, didn't he? He talked about the fact that salt and light can make a difference. And I love the, again, in God's economy, it's not equal. If you've ever baked and you either forgot to add salt or you added salt when you shouldn't have added salt, it doesn't matter how much. The first bite you take, you know for a fact, you didn't need to have like a pound of flour and a pound of salt to notice. If you get a pound of flour and just a small amount of salt that shouldn't have been there, that first bite you're like, oh yeah, this doesn't taste right. That's the impact a small amount of salt can make. And I believe that we see this this side of God that holds back on judgment as long as there is still hope for this world, as long as there is still good amongst the wicked. And we are those people. God's put us in this world. There's there's darkness around us, but he's put us in this world to make a difference. It's almost like we're stood between the judgment of God and the rescue and the salvation of people who don't yet know God. And that's a hard place to be. But if we look at Abraham, if we look at Abraham, he inspires us, he challenges us on where our heart should be in this place. In the next chapter, um, Abraham's referred to as a prophet. He's the very first man in the Bible, the very first person in the Bible to be referred to as a prophet. There were many men and women after Abraham that were referred to as prophets. And a prophet was basically somebody who brought the news of God, who, who spoke on behalf of God. Abraham was the interceding prophet. He was the man who came to God and said, but what if there are still some? What if there's hope for this city? What if there is hope it amazes me that Abraham was able to look at these people and plead with God on their behalf, for his family, for the other people. We can be tempted, can't we, to look at the wickedness in the world and wish that God would just punish them, give them what they deserve. But Abraham is crying out to God on their behalf. And I wonder when the last time was that we cried out to God on behalf of those around us who don't yet know him. The people in our lives who don't have the same relationship with God that we do. And I love the picture this paints of, of God's economy, how it works with, with numbers. Because sometimes it can feel like we are so small in number and, and the people in the world who are doing bad things, they're, they're so much larger. How much influence can we have? But I don't know about you, if, if, if I think back in my life to the point where I made a decision to, to turn and follow Jesus, to, to live differently, when I look back to that point in my life, it was one person guy by the name of Simon Crook. Simon talked to him about his relationship with Jesus. That's all it took was one person. Before him, there have been others, but just one person. You might be just one person in a crowd, but you might be the one person that makes the difference in the life of that person, the one person that God uses to reach that person, the one person that, because of your presence in this community or around these people, holds back God's judgment because he is patient, not wanting any, to suffer, but all to find him, all to have eternal life. We are the salt. We are the light. We are the hope in our communities. And I hope that we can have that same heart that Abraham had, that desire to say, God, help me reach the people around me who don't, know, don't yet know you. Let's pray. Father, as we look back at this rather strange story in the Bible, Lord, many, maybe some of us are familiar with the story, but... This conversation that Abraham had with God, this this pleading on behalf of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. The idea, Lord, that you would say, even just for a few, I would hold back. Lord, we might be the few in our workplace. We might be the few in our neighborhood. We might be the few amongst our circle of friends. But help us to know, Lord, that even though we might just be the few, we can turn the tide, Lord. We can make a huge difference. Help us to make a difference in the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.